All right, church, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and let's open them up to Philippians chapter 1. This morning, we'll finish out this first chapter. As we do, we'll be looking at verses 27 through 30. And verses 27 through 30 are actually one sentence in the original Greek text. However, most translations break them into uh, several shorter sentences in order to help make it more understandable for us. In our text this morning, we're going to see how Paul urges his readers to stand firm for the common purpose and, and to fight together for the gospel. The reality is that the Christian life is not a playground. Christian life is a battleground. And we need to understand that. We need to wake up and engage in the battle. What we've learned so far through this first chapter is that in verses 1 through 11, we see that we're a family. And because we're a family, we enjoy the fellowship of the gospel. Then in verses 12 through 26, we see that we are servants. And because we are servants, then we share in the furtherance of the gospel. Now we get to the end in verses 27 through 30, we're going to discover that we are soldiers. Because we're soldiers, we work together to defend the faith of the gospel. And we too can have the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the battle when we have that single mind devotion that we spoke about last week. A single mind devotion that says no matter what happens in my life, in my circumstance, in me or around me, then I will focus on glorifying God and sharing the gospel with other people. There is an enemy who is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And if Satan can rob believers of the joy of their Christian faith, if he can distort or diminish the doctrines that are distinctively ours, then he can cripple or he can defeat the ministry and the effectiveness of the local church. I don't know about you, but for me, I find it extremely sad to hear people say things like, I don't really care what you believe, just as long as you respect one another. I do care what you believe. Because wrong belief leads to wrong behavior. Right belief leads to right behavior. So no wonder Satan attacks our young people in particular, seeking to try to get them to wander away from the teachings of the church. You realize that each church is just one generation short of potential extinction? We must realize that we are an army and we're to be engaged in a spiritual battle. Therefore, we must fight together. This is why Paul sends this letter to his friends in Philippi. And in the paragraph that we're going to look at this morning, he's going to explain to them the three essentials for victory in the battle to protect the faith. And so the very first essential that we must have is that of consistency. Look at verse number 27, the first part. This is only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. One of the most effective weapons that we have against our enemy is the consistent life of a believer. 
Paul writes and he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It, it can also be translated this way, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, behave the way that citizens are supposed to behave. Paul suggesting that we as Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, as believers, we are to behave as though we are citizens of heaven, because we are, rather than behaving like we're citizens of earth. He brings up this concept again later in his letter. If you look at chapter 3, verse number 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, as believers, we are citizens of, of heaven. Therefore, we are called and we are commanded to behave like citizens of heaven. Which raises the question, am I conducting my life in a manner worthy of the gospel? Or another way to ask it, am I behaving like I'm a citizen of heaven? Good questions for us to ask ourselves regularly. And Paul posed this, this concept and this truth throughout multitude of his letters. In fact, if you will uh, turn to the left a, a few pages and, and look what Paul says to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. Just a page or two to your left. And, and look at verse number 1. There Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So he's urging us to, to, to behave as, as heaven's citizens. And what does that look like? He says right there in verse number two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, there, there, that's just another example. Now go to your left, back to Philippians, and then the next book is Colossians. Look what Paul says, look at what he says in Colossians chapter 1. There he says in verse number 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. There it is. To behave like heaven's citizens. Fully pleasing Him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's worth remembering that the world around us only knows the gospel that it sees in us. To which a man by the name of Paul Gilbert wrote these words, and I think he beautifully captures that truth. He wrote the little poem that says, You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true, just what is the gospel according to you. Good word. Now, the gospel, make no mistake, is the good news that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. Now, Paul loved to talk about the gospel. One more place, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll just read it for you real quick. 
there he says in verses 3 through 8, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he talks about the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again. Now, to add anything to the gospel is to deprive it of its power. We are not saved from our sins by faith in Christ plus something else. It is in Christ and in Christ alone. So one of the greatest weapons that we have against the adversary is the consistent godly life. Let me put it this way. If the church would practice the truth, if the church would behave what it believes, then will help to have victory over the enemy. So a consistent godly life is the first essential that is necessary for us to have victory over our adversary. The second is cooperation. Go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. I should stop. No, I should keep on going. I may hear that you are, are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we talk about consistency first, and then Paul talks about cooperation. And when he talks about cooperation, he uses athletics as an illustration. He uses the phrase striving side by side. That phrase gives us our English word athletics. Paul pictures the church as a team. And he reminds them that teamwork is necessary in order for us to experience victory. And keep in mind that there were divisions that was occurring within this church at the time of this writing. In fact, for one thing, what we know that there were two women who weren't getting along with each other. And we'll get to that by the time we get to chapter 4. And apparently, the membership of the church was beginning to take sides. And as a result of their division, their ministry and the effectiveness of their ministry was being hindered. The enemy is always happy to see internal divisions occur within the church. The enemy, our adversary, lives by the motto, divide and conquer. If Satan can stir up controversy within the church, if he can raise up distractions within the church, if he can build within the church frustration among the people, if he can help the church to split, then that's a victory for the enemy. I hope you understand that. 
three months that I've been here, trying to understand our church's history, trying to understand what is the best way to effectively to be able to encourage and to lead us. I am painfully aware of the church splits that have occurred within this congregation. Now, we can creatively call it anything else, but make no mistake, it was a victory for the enemy. Ten years ago, when a group of individuals leave this body to go and start another church within the community, that was a victory for the enemy because it distracted the church. It brought division and frustration within the body. And several years ago, as, as, a, as another wave of frustration occurs and another exodus of people that leave this area for another church in, in the community and some leaders that left the church uh, to go out of frustration, another division, another split within the church. And that's not healthy. The enemy wins when the church splits. Because what happens now, we can spin it and say, yeah, well, there's another church in our community or another church that has more members now. But the reality is, none of us are working together. We're not striving side by side together. And unfortunately, there's, there's some frustration. There's some bitterness. There's some heartaches. There's some there's some deep-rooted pain that, that still exists. Now, some of you don't even have a clue what I'm talking about. Good for you. But many of you have lived through it. You've struggled through it. Now you walk in the community, and you go through H-E-B, and you have this interaction that's always weird. You see somebody that used to be a part of the fellowship, but now they left with one of the splits, and now you don't really know what to do or how to interact, and it's like this awkwardness, and so you just act like you don't see each other. The enemy wins. The enemy wins with that. I'm not here to let the enemy win. I don't want any part of that. I want to bring us together. And I'm just going to tell you, I need your prayers in order for that to happen. I have reached out to the pastor of Pack Saddle Fellowship and to the pastor of Chapel of the Hill. And both of those men very graciously agreed to meet with me, inviting leaders from their church. We'll take leaders from our church. And then on Saturday, August the 11th, at 10 o'clock in the morning, we are all gathering together to say, enough of this. Enough of this. Let's just identify it for what it is. Well, this, the, the Satan, oh, he had a little victory, but now we're going to flip the script on him. And we're going to cooperate with one another. And we're going to strive together, side by side, to effectively reach this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that we'll be one. And so as believers stand together in cooperation, they are strengthened and, uh, and empowered to overcome the wicked one. Now throughout this letter, Paul uses an interesting device to emphasize the importance of unity. In the Greek language, he uses the prefix soon, as she went. Uh, now that prefix, when it's used, uh, it, it brings together this idea of strength. When, when it's added to, to other words, it strengthens the idea of unity and cooperation. It's much like the English prefix that we use, co. 
So, so, so here, there's at least 16 different times in this letter that Paul uses this prefix, which it might not stand out for us, but make no mistake, the readers of his time would have understood the message that Paul was trying to communicate. In this one verse, in verse number 27, he uses the, the Greek word, soon athleo. That's where we get our word, athletics. And it literally means striving together as athletes. I think it helps to visualize the local church as a team of athletes. Like all teams, each person has their assigned place and their assigned job. When each teammate does their job correctly, it helps the whole team. The team has rules to follow. God's book is our rule book in life. There's our instruction manual. There's a rule book. And so there's one goal. And that goal is to glorify God and to seek to do His will. Now if we'll all work together, then we'll reach the goal. If we'll work together, we'll win the prize. If we'll work together, we'll bring glory to the Father. But, the minute any one of us decides to start disobeying his rule book, when we start skipping out on the training, we start looking for, for personal glory within the church, then that teamwork disappears. And inevitably, division and competition takes over, and when that happens, the enemy wins. So what do we know so far? We know that we are citizens of heaven. Therefore, we should walk consistently. We know that we are members of the same team. Therefore, we should walk cooperatively. Which takes us to the third essential element for victory. And that is confidence. Let's finish out this chapter. Verse number 28. I'll back up a little bit. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, in these verses... Paul gives us several encouragements that helps to give us confidence in the battle. We're not, we're not just to believe in Christ, but when it gets better, everything becomes oh so peaceful. That's not the truth. That's not reality. When you put your faith in Jesus, it's not like the end of your battles, you know, come to a conclusion. No, when you put your faith in Jesus, that just means new battles are about to begin. The scripture teaches us, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to come. But the presence of conflict, we have to understand, is a privilege. We suffer for his sake. In fact, Paul tells us that this conflict has been granted to us means it's a gift to us from God. Now, if we were to suffer for ourselves or 
or suffer because of our own stupidity. Well, that's, that, there's no privilege in that. But when we're called to suffer for and with Christ, and when we do, then that is a high and holy honor. After all, He suffered for us. And a willingness to suffer for Him is the least that we could do in order to demonstrate our love and our gratitude for the Savior. And Paul reminds us that other people are experiencing the same kind of conflict. I think Satan wants us to think that we're all alone. That, that we're alone in the battle. That our struggles, our, our problems, our pain are unique to us and, and nobody else can understand. Well, that's not true. Paul reminds the, the Philippians that he's going through the same difficulties that they are experiencing, yet he is hundreds and hundreds of miles separated from them while he's in prison in Rome. I think knowing that fellow believers are also engaged in the battle is an encouragement for us to keep going. It is an encouragement and a reminder for us to, to pray for others as we're praying for ourselves. And I'm convinced that, that when our enemy sees our God-given confidence, then it makes him fear and, and tremble. So when we have that single mind devotion that is fixated on glorifying God and sharing the gospel, that will enable us to have joy in the midst of the conflict, will enable us to have joy in the midst of that battle. And the reason why it enables us to have joy in the battle is because it produces within us consistency, cooperation, and confidence. Oh, church, may we experience the joy of spiritual teamwork. May we strive together side by side as athletes engaged in the defending faith of the gospel. May we not grow weary. May we love one another. May we encourage each other. And when we suffer, may we give glory to God in the midst of that suffering. And may we consider it a privilege, a high and holy honor to suffer for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, oh, I thank you for this church. What a great privilege it is to be here in this moment at this time. And Father, as we come to a conclusion of our time together, God, I pray that your spirit would move among us, guiding us and convicting us of the decisions that we need to make right here and right now. God, may we all give thoughtful consideration of making a choice for you today. Some of us need to receive salvation May your Holy Spirit give us the faith that's required to receive that gift. Some of us need to, to wake up and to, to, to realize the damage and the destruction that our sin is causing, not just to ourselves, but to our family, to our friends. God, in this time of invitation, I pray that you would receive all the glory that you are due. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Church.